1: Okay, everyone, today we have Jason Gagnard, who is a Canadian entrepreneur, a super connector, and an author who founded Mastermind Talks, an invitation-only conference for entrepreneurs, in twenty thirteen. Also, we met at a dinner in Toronto. This is I believe two years ago. And then I looked at Jason, I was like, oh my God, this guy, like I read his stuff before. He wrote a book called Mastermind Dinners, where I actually printed out the PDFs, and I that's where I learned how to first do my initial dinner. So that literally it's a checklist of things you should do to throw through. Dinner the right way. So, Jason, very excited to have you here. How is it going,
0: dude? I I appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. You didn't buy the book. You you stole the PDF. I just I put PDF. I I put no, Mastermind. <laughs> yeah, and then I found the PDF. And like, no, but no, it came work. from your site. I'm not attached. Yeah, this I actually <laughs> gave out like seven thousand copies of the book, like at one point in time within yeah. a forty eight hour period. 'Cause yeah. I care less about the money, I care about the message and I'm seeing yeah. just huge value in collecting connecting like minded individuals. So Yeah. And like
1: on this podcast and even on the other podcast that I do, I, I talk oftentimes about having a, a peer group of people, masterminds, whatever. There's all these different things, right? And then That's your true. mastermind talks group, I, from everyone I've heard from, is they say by Barnon, it is the best one. I haven't been able to go yet. Last time I wasn't able to go, but can't wait one day. But I mean I'd love to learn before we even talk about it love to learn a little more about kind of what your story is and what led you up to you know where you are now.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean the the quick version is I dropped out of high school and I started a service-based business and realized that service-based businesses are a little tricky to scale. So I pivoted into an online product business, which we grew to about six million dollars a year over four years with no outside investments. So I was living my model of success, the whole four hour work week, so to speak, but I realized that after doing this business for six, seven years at that point that I built a business I hated to enable me to buy things I didn't need to impress people I didn't like. So I felt like I was stuck on this hamster wheel and I couldn't get off and just uh, became comfortable with the idea of scaling the business down to zero and finding something that would kind of light me up in that second act, I guess you could say. Unfortunately, I wasn't good at building Uh, teams within the the organization. So I had B-level players that had like C-level players under them. And the minute I realized I wanted to get out of the business, the business just started kind of cannibalizing from the inside out. And I kind of disconnected and I just didn't want to be in it. So our goal was to scale down to zero and have hopefully a soft landing and leave me with a little bit of cash to start something new. Unfortunately, given the fact, again, I didn't have a great team and two things that were kind of beyond my control basically landed me a quarter million dollars in debt in August of 2012. So I went from riding high to <laughs> hitting the skid, so to speak. And there's a saying that when one door closes, another one opens, but it sucks to be stuck in the hallway. That was a very dark hallway for me at the time from a transition perspective. Yeah, this all happened in in August. And September 1st of that year, my daughter turned six months old. On September 1st, I got married to my wife. So there was just there was, there was a lot happening at once and I had a, a really hard time trying to get a grip on things. But about a month later in September, uh, late September, a friend of mine posted to social media that she had an extra ticket to go see Seth Godin in New York. And I've always been a big fan of Seth's work, but never had an opportunity to see him in a live setting, so to speak. I had no other obligations at the time. so. I said, you know what, I'll take the ticket. I just had to cover my flight and hotel, which I stayed in a hostel for the first and last time. (laughs) I I wasn't aware of this whole shared bathroom arrangement. Anyways, went to this workshop, didn't know what it was about. Turned out the theme of it was the connection economy and how there's huge value in connecting like-minded individuals. And I just felt very socially isolated at the time. I mean, entrepreneurs, it's very common for them to, you know, you're working in your business in your own kind of little silo, so to speak. And I never built... I never burned any relationships building my last business, but I didn't focus on on building relationships either. So I came back and I started to host these things called Mastermind Dinners, where I'd invite eight entrepreneurs up for dinner with the core focus of connecting them. And the first one I did almost canceled two hours prior because I'm like, nobody's going to see value in this. They're going to think I completely wasted their time. But thankfully, that first dinner turned out to be a great success. I mean, conversation went on for four and a half hours and didn't skip a beat. And I just got clarity that connecting entrepreneurs or just being in proximity of fast vaccinating people was something I wanted to do to some capacity for the rest of my life. And not necessarily as a business. I wasn't charging for for the dinners. I was paying for them out of pocket, which, you know, in hindsight was a little crazy because I was a quarter million dollars in debt. Didn't know how I was going to make rent. My wife and I were actually living on like gift cards, long story, but it was (laughs) a really bad time. But to me... The little credit I had left, I chose to invest that into my relationships because I'm like, the bank could take my car, they could take whatever assets I have left, but they can't take my relationships. Investing in my relationships to me is the safest investment I could make back then. I still think the the same is true today. So continued on with these dinners. And the common misconception is that like, because now people... You know, Forbes called me like one of the top networkers and all this kind of stuff. So people always assumed I've always had this great set of relationships. But I always point back to when I got married in September of 2012, I had two people show up to my bachelor party. I had my brother and my brother-in-law. I knew nobody back then. That first dinner I did, I reached out to people cold that I found in a magazine, <laughs> in a business magazine. So I started, yeah, I guess started from scratch, so to speak. I started hosting these dinners and then had an opportunity to do an event with Tim Ferriss that kind of fell in my lap a couple months into me doing these dinners. And I just saw it as a chance for me to do what I do in the dinners on a larger scale. And how that happened was Tim was coming out with a book called The 4-Hour Chef. And up until that point, he had the 4-Hour work week, the 4-Hour Body. And a couple of weeks prior to releasing this new book, he found out that he was going to be banned from all retail distribution. So Barnes & Noble, Walmart, everybody. And the reason for that is he was the first big-name author to publish through Amazon. And the old traditional publishing arm wanted to make an example out of him, so to speak. So they banned him. And Tim is one of the best book marketers I know. So creatively, he created these book bundle campaigns where if you bought ten books, you get you know additional resources. You bought fifty books, maybe do some kind of webinar or something. Well, he had a Hail Mary package that if you bought four thousand books, he'd do two speaking engagements. And at the time, I thought of a friend of mine who's in the event space. I'm like, dude, this is a great opportunity. He's only offering one package. And the minute I click send on that email, I say, you know what, I'll I'll commit to the package. And the Tricky part was I emailed Tim that morning and I said I'll, I'll take the the package, but I had to come up with eighty-four thousand dollars in three days, which was problematic because I all my past businesses I built on credit cards. I was uh, kind of raised on the the mindset of you know do things on your own and just a sense of pride and not asking for help. So uh, I reached out to three friends that morning and I said the first one I called I said hey this is what I'm I'm thinking of. You know this hour's only this idea is only a few hours old but this is what i'm thinking and he said you know sounds awesome like come back to me with numbers and i'm like all right give me i have a few more phone phone calls to make second person said sounds awesome let's start a business together 50 50. and i said that sounds wicked i have one more person to call the third person i called i was probably halfway through the pitch and he said just come to my office tomorrow morning at 9 a.m and pick up a check I hung up that phone. I did not give him any more reasons to say no. That following morning, I probably showed up at his office at like 6.30 in the morning to make sure that if he had a change of heart, he'd be like, dude, I'm already outside. Got that check, sent the money to Tim, and that's how I got in the event space. And a few months later, we did our Mastermind Talks event, which... Luckily, we had a, a lot of interest for it. We had 4,200 entrepreneurs apply for a, an event that was capped at 150 people. And it's evolved, you know, quite a bit over the years. Uh, but I always say ignorance, confidence, and hard work can go a long way when you're an entrepreneur. So, yeah, we've done seven of them thus far. And we've had over 18,000 entrepreneurs apply. So, it's uh, it's been a good run.
1: 18,000 entrepreneurs that apply. And you say each year, how many apply?
0: On average, between, I guess three to four thousand so yeah since our inception in 2013 we've had eighteen thousand
1: 4 point2 4 point3 percent acceptance rate guys it's not easy can you walk us through the economics of the business like okay how do you how do you guys make money how much do you charge and you know how's the business doing today
0: yeah economics are pretty simple we have 150 clients so to speak we package it almost like a, a membership where you join if accepted you join and, and it's basically an investment of ten to twelve thousand dollars a year so we have alumni that renew every year and we have new people that pay a little bit of a higher premium, so to speak, until they get into that alumni pool. So, yeah, so the business does I – mean, with our side, we do little side events and that kind of stuff that are more revenue neutral. But it's it's basically about a $2 million a year business. It's myself and my wife supports the, event, the, the business as well. Uh, she's my partner in the business. And then we have an assistant. So that's the whole team. So, yeah. And then they tend to be pretty high touch experiences. So we do them at like five star properties. We change the location every year. So this this year we're doing it in Cabo, Mexico. Last year we did Park City. The year prior to that was Carmel. So uh, tend to keep them. Yeah. These gatherings in North America. This is the first time we're going outside North America, but we do them once a year. Okay. What is, what does the
1: experience look like? Like how many days is it? What are they getting from it?
0: It's three and a half days. So people come in, there's a welcome dinner on the first night. And then there's three full days after that. It's a pretty immersive experience. There's, there's there's morning activities. Like for me, My belief is that the best learning doesn't always happen in the conference room. It happens in conversation. And because of the curation of our community, a lot of people in the community are, you know, speakers on other stages or New York Times bestselling authors and that kind of stuff. So it's always been weird to me to like have somebody who would be like, you know, a New York Times bestselling author like Tim Ferriss, for example, sitting in the audience listening to somebody else from the stage. And plus, content is abundant. If you want to hear some of the world's best speakers, just go on TED.com. We can't, I mean, there's no way we can compete with that. Where we can compete is really with the curation, so that is really our focus, and that's something historically we we excel at, and we're going to get even better at in the future. But really, the the day if I can if I can boil down the essence of the event to anything, it's great people, great food, great experiences in a beautiful setting with learning intertwined throughout the event. So, you know, throughout our three days, we may only have two or three speakers. There's other different ways we shape content through like peer to peer roundtables and that kind of stuff. But again, very experiential. To me, the best learning is when you don't know your learning. Similar, there's like a saying like the best networking is when you don't know your networking, right? It's not handing business cards. It's like sharing a great meal or doing yoga or, you know, sharing a drink by the fire. So we take that all into consideration and and just really kind of design that container and put amazing people in that container for three and a half days.
1: right? Right. I love that. I I think I'm sure, well, I I have some thoughts around this, but I'd love to get your thoughts on why you have 4,500 or 3,500, let's say average people that apply per year. Some people might be thinking, why not scale the thing to uh, make it much bigger? And so I want to get your thoughts on it before I add my thoughts.
0: What's funny, I have a book here in my bag called No Man's Land, which a friend of mine just sold his business for 200 million. And they were doing he had a relatively small team, they had like 40 employees, they were doing about $30 million a year. So a $200 million exit is a, is a pretty nice exit. But one of the books he recommended to me uh, is No Man's Land. And it just talks about like this no man's land for businesses when they try to scale past like 5 million to like 50 million or like 20 employees to 80 employees, it's a weird space to be in. And on some small level, I experienced that in my last business, where we were in the ticketing space, the e-commerce space, and I had Let's say, I think I was doing probably about $2 million a year in sales, and I was kind of my income, my personal income was like 400 grand, and I had like three employees. So my ignorance back then was like, well, if I do $4 million a year, I double my revenue, I'll double my profit, and I'll make more money. Well, unfortunately, not realizing that, you know, revenues and profits scale very differently. I doubled the business, but we went from three employees to like 12 employees to support it. Plus, we had to get a bigger office and all this kind of stuff. And I think that following year, I netted like another like $40,000. <laughs> <laughs> With all <laughs> like, the headaches. So I've come to realize that there's th- these different levels of sweet spots for event, for event for, for businesses. And for us to do more events, we'd have to have a bigger team. And it would just be a lot more kind of headaches and, and that kind of stuff for us, where we could make more money, but we'd have to get to that next sweet spot. And uh, Tim Ferriss, actually, he has a question, which I love, which is, what would this look like if it was easy? You know, if we can have a $2 million a year of business with really one employee and demand, and we can selectively choose who we want to serve as far as our clients, we don't have to like, I'm a, I think I'm a terrible marketer, so I don't have to rely on my terrible marketing to get people, <laughs> up, so to speak that's a pretty sweet business. And for me, I can, I mean, meets all of our wants and needs financially and then some with that extra time and bandwidth, I can focus on, you know, other ventures potentially or what have you. But for me, instead of scaling in revenues, I really try to scale, you know, trust with our community. And that's more of a focus for me. So,
1: yeah, I, I think that that's more important. I, I think with things like this too, when you, when, when they get too big, and I've been in other groups where all of a sudden, a lot of people just started joining, right? Just to grow it. And then yeah. what happens is it feels like it's much more commercial than anything. It doesn't have as much of an authentic feel that you'd want to kind of maintain. And I think that's what you're doing with, with mastermind talks, right?
0: It's very different in the sense that because of its intimacy, we have 150 people at MMT. I'd easily have 135 of them to my wedding. I mean, these are my favorite people on planet. 95% of our social time as a family is with people from the community. So we did like a Disney cruise uh, you know, in February where we had 80 people out at this Disney cruise. Awesome. We do all kinds of stuff together and we'd lose that if we scale. I mean, it's that simple. I still have a desire. I'm starting a new organization now which is designed to do what we do with MMT, but scale. And I'm not the face of it. I'm not the, the not the bottleneck. Like it's, it's designed to take all my learnings with MMT and and you know, have somebody else run the model, so to speak. But MMT has become something has really morphed into something really special. And like I said, we've done that. I did a podcast episode once called Scaling is Stupid, which is challenging the notion of scale because nobody challenges it oftentimes or just, you know, in the in the business community it's all about growth and more employees and more revenues and that kind of stuff. But nobody ever asks what's the the end result or the end question or the yeah, the end result that they're trying to achieve. So for me I've just been very clear that I want a good life and surround myself with great people and have been able to do that. So I don't want to I don't want to ruin that, so to speak, by just scaling for the sake of scaling.
1: I, I love that. And you say you're not a good marketer, but I, I'd argue that you are because the fact of the matter is, I, I think I learned of you seven years ago, and I you know I still keep seeing your name <laughs> pop up over and over. so you you do marketing. I mean, I think it works because the people that you target end up showing up to all the events that you do. I remember the Toronto dinner that I met you at, there were a lot of amazing people there. And then fortunately enough, you were in LA and then um, you had a dinner in Culver City. And again, there was more amazing people there. There's people that I've, I think it was, what's his name? Cal Fussman. But yeah, you, you had all these amazing people that I've heard of before. And I'm like, wow, these people are actually here. I think that would be considered one of the side events, correct?
0: Yeah. I mean, that was basically, I, I still hold dinners all the time like before I used to do dinners, so there's almost like two styles of dinners that I'll do. I'll do either a big dinner of like, whether you have eight people or 80 people, it's kind of the same, you know, a dinner of that, of, of that magnitude, so to speak, gives you an opportunity to have like micro interactions with people. So if there's individuals that I've like never had an opportunity to connect with in person, or I want to keep relatively, you know, in my relationship sphere, but don't want to allocate a ton of bandwidth to, to the relationship. Then I'll usually do these big dinners when I come to a city. And then I'll do smaller dinners, like six people where my, like my goal is to I actually you know, build deeper relationships with those individuals. So the one you went to in LA is just, I was in LA and I know so many great people in LA. Just, there's so many awesome entrepreneurs in LA that I, I just had to do a big dinner, which is why I had you out at it.
1: Oh, thank you. Appreciate that. And when you, okay, so here, here's the other thing. I guess we can kind of go into like the the beauty of, of throwing these dinners. And maybe sure. some people are thinking, okay, so... I do them because of you, because I learned from you. So I, I know I've seen some of the benefits from it. So what are some unforeseen benefits, just in case people are wondering, that happen from these dinners or like things that you've seen? Maybe some case studies, some examples.
0: Oh, God, case studies. Ah, putting me on the spot. I mean, there's there's a ton. I mean, for example, you know, one guy came to a dinner and I sat him. I do strategic, like assigned seating oftentimes. And I sat one guy next to another guy because I'm like, this guy needs a book. Like he just, he has this philosophy around something that I think is is something profound. So I sat him next to somebody who was a three-time number one New York Times bestselling author. Fast forward three years later, the event was, dinner was in 2015. So actually in 2019, so February 2019, He actually launched his book. He had one of the biggest advances for a a business author, you know, close to almost a million dollars for a book advances, a ton for a first time author. And the book came out in February. It was a huge success. So, I mean, that's one example, you know, just business partnerships that stem from it. Um, Does his name start with an S? No. Okay. I was actually I was I was being very hesitant because uh, I didn't want to like share the the how <laughs> much you got as an advance because it's yeah. private. Yeah. So I didn't want too much of a picture. Yeah. That's a good guess. But yeah, I mean, tons of stuff like that. I mean, I always say people don't invest in relationships because they can't peg an ROI to it. Oftentimes, they can peg an ROI going to a workshop or reading a book. Dads, yeah. If I hire this coach. It's gonna you know do X Y Z for my business and it should generate you know, X as far as an ROI, you, it's, you can't do that with relationships. That's why, again, it's, it's, it's tricky. With that said, though, Steve Jobs has a saying that you can't connect the dots looking forward. You just need to trust that they'll somehow connect. And for me, when I started to do invest in relationships, I started to see that ROI. And it, it was enough confirmation for me that I just doubled down at all costs. Now, and a great example I'd love to share about ROI when it comes to relationships, which really kind of brings some tangibility to it is in 2011, I went to an event called Opening the Kimono, put on by Tim Ferriss. It was a uh, event geared towards authors who wanted to become New York Times bestselling authors. And I never had the intention of ever writing a book, but it was $10,000 to go for two days. And I'm like, $10,000 is probably going to be some interesting people there. And I was kind of in transition at the time. And for context, I that's 20 times more than I've ever spent on an event. So yeah. like, I either went to free events or like 500 bucks at the yeah. most is what I spent. Yeah. So anyways, I decided to take a little bit of leap of faith and I went to this event. And friends in my peer group at the time, they're like, you're crazy spending $10,000 to go to an event. But I went. And when the event was done you know if somebody asked me did you get ten thousand dollars worth of value the answer would have been no because i mean the content didn't necessarily appeal to me or was it applicable necessarily although in hindsight now it has been tremendous but at the time i didn't i didn't get that value but the funny thing is is that that event happened in 2011 and i nurtured a handful of relationships people i connected with at that event with no not seeking roi there was no transactional kind of mindset behind it by any stretch But I nurtured those relationships. When I launched MMT in 2013, when I was kind of rock bottom on the skids, I had five people speak at uh, Mastermind Talks for free that I met at that event in 2011. I had, I think about six or seven people sign up for Mastermind Talks, which was $3,000 a person that year that I met at that event in 2011. And two of those people signed up for my $25,000 a year quarterly retreat program if I would have added or if I added what I would have paid in speaker fees, the missed revenue on, you know, those people attending and that kind of stuff, the ROI in like two, two, massive is something like $215,000 last time I checked and The beautiful thing is these are relationships. As long as I live into my 80s, that one event, the ROI from that one event will be in the millions. If it's not, it's already in the millions already. So that's one thing. Again, it was a bit a little bit of of faith and just core focus of connecting with great people. And uh, there's just one tiny event in my life that the ROI has been tremendous. And I got hundreds yeah. of those examples.
1: Title of this podcast, why you should spend $10,000 on an event. But I, I agree with you totally. It's, it's like a, a TED ticket is now 10 grand. Yeah, and, and Mastermind Talks too. Ted, Mastermind Talks, Singularity University Executive, all of these, it's oh, the yeah. people that are there. And I, I think the people that are asking, like, well, why spend 10 grand? I don't think it's maybe the right question to ask, but it's what we would have asked before. <laughs>
0: Sure. So. Sure. Yeah. Singularity executive program is another great example.
1: Yeah. So for you, I'm going to, cause I've taken a bunch of notes from, from you in the past, not only from your books, but you actually have a podcast, which we, which we can share at the end too. The way you keep in touch with people, I'm sure you've figured out a process there. So what is your process for kind of nurturing and, and just keeping in touch with people? Cause most people aren't good at that, but that's something that you've actually been very thoughtful about, I think.
0: Yeah, I mean, I definitely try. And the more, listen, I guess the first thing I want to, to address is that I know all of the quote unquote, super connectors in this space, all the big ones, all the ones that have written all the books and all that kind of stuff. And a lot of them fool themselves in thinking that they can, you know, manage 5,000 relationships or 10,000 relationships. You know, they'll have these CRMs with these, you know, these, check-ins like every 30 days that send out of like, oh, hey, how you doing? Like a canned message and that kind of stuff. I've never met one that actually has a really good handle on relationships. For me, what I've done is prioritize and focus, so to speak. I mean, there's something called Dunbar's number, which basically states that humans from an evolutionary perspective can only have about 150 stable social relationships at a time, and knowing that like we have that cognitive limitation, I try my best to be very conscious as far as who's in that pool of 150. There's actually different, I guess, ripples of intensity when it comes to relationships. If you look at Dunbar's kind of philosophy, so 150 is like you can see it a lot in uh, certain industries and uh, in businesses like Gore-Tex. When they were kind of scaling, they realized that like. When your team came to about 150, it was really hard for the the company to continue to grow. So they actually built out these pods of 150 people in these pods. The entrepreneurs organization, which I know you, you're you're a member of, familiar with, you know, they had the exact same problem. A lot of their chapters get to about 150, and they would just not. Surpass that, so they started splitting them into groups of seventy-five, and then both of those would grow to one hundred and fifty. So there's something magical about that number. There's a ton of studies and research which. And are that's why different. your group is one hundred and fifty. It actually, it's organically happened that <laughs> way. I found out about the one hundred and fifty rule like probably a year or two after Mastermind talks. The reason I actually capped Mastermind talks to one hundred and fifty people initially was I didn't wanna walk into the event and not like recognize somebody or not know them by name. Like I wanna have a level of a relationship with them where not only do I know their name, I know their ideal client, I know the name of their kids. Like I wanna have that level of relationship. So that's why we capped it at 150. The only problem now that I've I've kinda got myself into is that like, we don't have the same 150 people we did in year one, we probably had about 450 entrepreneurs to MMT. So now like my brain is just like overflowing with all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So all this to say, you know, my, my, my philosophy is to go like wide in your networking, and deep in your nurturing. So networking wise, I have my CRM as of like, last week was like a 14,000 people. So I know 14,000 people, but I'm not deep I don't have deep friendships with 14,000 people I probably have deep friendships with with a couple hundred so having that kind of focus and prioritizing is is really really important the one thing i'll say about prioritizing some oftentimes people won't do it because they feel like they almost have to like cut off the relationship or send an email and be like hey unfortunately you don't make my top 150 anymore uh, and that's not the case at all like the people who are in my top 50, 150 like don't know necessarily that they're, they're in my top 150 but adam grant has this philosophy or he popularizes philosophy around dormant ties which is basically the way i look at it or an example is like if you went to high school with somebody and it's been 10 years and then you see them again and you haven't, you know, had any kind of conversation the last 10 years. Uh, It may be awkward for the first minute or two. But then after that, you pick up right from where you left off, right? And I almost look at it, like maybe there was a a favorite song when you were a teenager or something like that. And you listen to it now, you may remember like 85% of the words, right? So the common misconception is that when you prioritize that, like you're killing off relationships, and that's simply not the, the case, you can reactivate them at any time. So I'm just a huge fan of prioritization. And like I said, that plays into Dunbar's number and really, you know, our cognitive limitation.
1: Well, I actually have some notes on that. This is actually from your podcast. So there's t- five types of connections right here. Yep. So I see fringe, fans, community, connectors, and core. Do you remember that? I do.
0: I didn't remember all the words, but I do. Yeah. So, so the way I prioritize, uh, if we're talking about, if you want to make this, you know, actionable, yeah. uh, whichever you do. So Dunbar's philosophy is there's different layers. I've looked into a ton of different research and studies to try to get a handle on things. I created my own based off of a lot of different research. And basically, your core relationships are the people that have your back, so to speak, the people that would not let you sleep on the street. There's a lot of studies uh, to demonstrate how few true friends we really have. You know, Keith Ferrazzi wrote a book called Never Eat Alone. He wrote another book called Who's Got Your Back? And in that book, they interviewed a 1000 people at random and asked, who has your back? surprisingly, 60% of those people felt like nobody had their back. Even more surprisingly, the people that felt like nobody had their back, 55% of those people were married. So yeah, that, that to me is like having a core group of, of uh, relationships and being focused on them. And these are the people, again, that would not, to me, the, the way I look at it is they would not let you sleep on the street, that and you have to nurture those. And the problem is as well is that These different categories you nurture from the inside out. A lot of people will focus on these surface level relationships, which are like the fringe ones or the fans ones, when really you need to start with the core. So, core is first. Then you have connectors. And connectors, basically, the philosophy around that is I did a dinner in Waterloo, where I'm based out of, where I have this great network kind of all over the place. I don't have a great network locally, and I want to build roots here. So, I invited 40 people out for dinner. All different types of uh, industries, restaurateurs, people, big names in tech, all this kind of stuff. These were all new relationships. I had no, I didn't know them. And when they came to the dinner, I realized there was one guy in the room that knew like almost everybody there. And at the end of the dinner, I'm like, I can either A, try to maintain 40 relationships Or I can just maintain this one relationship and he'll be the catalyst to connect me with all these people if if need be. So there's a saying like I'd rather have four quarters than 100 pennies. So for me, I look at like who are some people in my network that are connectors or catalysts for different areas. So a friend of mine, Dan Martell, is really well-known and well-respected in SaaS. So like – he's my guy. If I needed to connect with somebody in tech or in SaaS, or, you know, some, I have another friend that's really well known with like high performance athletes and like, he's my guy. So like, those are the next set of relationships that I try to nurture and be very conscious of because like their reach is profound. Then you have community. We all have a deep desire to be you know, connected to like-minded individuals. So these are kind of, you know, your peers, so to speak. And just people that, you know, you, you I, my, my filter for that is would I want to have dinner with this person. So they would fall within that community. And then I have fans and fans are basically people that I have kind of loose relationships with, but I would feel like if I sent them an email, they wouldn't be bothered by it. Or the way I, I, I look at fans is if I reached out for an introduction, they would facilitate it. And to me, I want to have as many friends, like fans as possible. So I do things to nurture them as far as like an annual email and all that kind of stuff. But I try to have like one touch point a year with somebody in that fan category. And it doesn't have to be in person. It could be just, you know, by email. And then the final category is fringe. This is basically your sphere of, of influence. And I, I got this really from Tim Ferriss where, you know, he'll make a post on Facebook. Saying like, hey, does anybody know somebody in this space or an expert in this space? Or, hey, can anybody facilitate this introduction? And he'll have like 300 comments, you know, on his Facebook post. So that's ultimately like what I'm trying to consciously build as well. I'm not aggressive about it. Like I'm not, you know, feverishly trying to build out a a personal brand, so to speak. But there's definitely power in that fringe network of people who know you, but you may not necessarily know them.
1: We can go for hours on this, but yeah. uh, I, I want to be respectful of your time too. So um, no, you talked I've about
0: the podcast in like like nine months. I've turned them all down. So this is all like you're you're yeah yes. reinvigorating all these philosophies that I forgot I shared once. What what am I here? Let's
1: see. Am I a core connector or community? It's okay. As long as I'm top three, it's fine. Um, yeah. Anyway, so one thing you said, I think in a podcast was you don't really like it, and I, I agree with this. When someone says, "How can I help you?"
0: Yeah. So the reason for that. So this is common, right? It's like, you know, you ask people, how do you invest in relationships? And it's always like be of value, be of service. And the natural kind of thing is like, oh, always asking, like, how can I help you? Well, here's the problem with that. One, it puts the onus on the other person to come up with ways that, that you can be of value.
1: Yeah, that's work.
0: That's work, yeah, that's a pain in the ass. So yeah, that's something you, you, you don't wanna do. And ultimately, all the relationship stuff I, I share, what have you, especially when it comes to investing in relationships, we all have a deep desire to feel seen, to feel heard, to feel appreciated. I mean, that's ultimately like a lot of the strategies I, I I have around like checking in with people or sending strategic gifts or thoughtful gifts or that kind of stuff. Really, ultimately, what you're trying to nail is having people feel seen, heard, appreciated. If I come to you and I'm like, how can I help you? That means you don't see me. You don't understand me. You don't know what's, you know, keeping me up at night, so to speak. So it is it's very different than when somebody reaches out to you and says, hey, You know eric i know you're working on these things and it doesn't even have to be that they have an intimate relationship with you it could be you know if i want to connect with ray dalio i can just you know look at everything he's written all his social media posts and that kind of stuff and find ways to be of service to him and then find a way to reach out to him and say like hey i know these are three priorities for you based on what i've seen here's five ways i can help you that's a way different you know feeling and sentiment than just reaching out to somebody and being lazy about it honestly and saying, how can I help you?
1: Right. So what I'm hearing is just do a little bit of the work so they don't have to do the work.
0: Do all the heavy lifting. Yeah. yeah. Same thing with like mentorships. Like Mentorships are incredibly valuable. And people, you know, want to just, I don't know, they undervalue it. And to make the most out of a mentorship relationship, you have to do the heavy lifting. So it just takes work. And the same thing with that. If you actually really want to be of value to somebody... It's not hard to figure out how you can do that and and don't put the onus on them to figure out ways.
1: So I have two lines here. One says invest in rising stars, not the established people. And then the second one is find people who are undervalued and underappreciated.
0: Sure. I mean, the philosophy around that is like, I think we can all remember a time when somebody believed in us when we didn't necessarily believe in ourselves. And that person owns a hell of a lot of real estate in our head and in our heart, most likely. And to me... You know, you never forget those individuals. So I, the way I look at it is like, you know, I have friends that go to Richard Branson's island every year and a handful of friends who are, you know, friends with Branson. And I'm invited every year, like two, three times to come to one of his, you know, gatherings on his island and that kind of stuff. And I have zero desire to go because I'm like, for me to actually break in and become friends, genuine friends with Br- Richard Branson is like a snowball's chance in hell because he sees, he already has friends. He already has all the friends he needs and that at this point where he is, 99.9% of the new people he meets want something from him. So he already has his guard up. So it's just good luck trying to become friends with him. Conversely, I know people who are rising stars. I, I see myself almost as, as a talent scout and I, I invest like half the amount of energy in them and supporting them, you know they like all own again a ton of real estate. It's almost like how somebody would invest in business. I invest in people the very same way. I try to find people who are undervalued, and instead of making a financial investment, although I do financial stuff as well, I make investments as far as just again a sense of belief and giving them time and giving them guidance and and those kind of things. And the the beautiful thing is now I can look back. I've been doing this for six years. And that shit has paid off. You know what I mean? Like I met Ryan Holiday, who's has like five, you know, best-selling books. Just brilliant, brilliant guy. I met him when he was like eighteen, and the reason for that is that he was at an event, that opening the kimono event, where there was speakers on stage, like Tim Ferriss and Ramit Sethi and all these guys, and. They kept on pointing to the back of the room at this Ryan Holiday guy. To get how, how could he afford ten grand at 18, 18 years old? He, he was he was there because he was kind of good friends with Tim ah, and helped okay. other people. So he was there from the like uh, he was like this marketing savant. But I just remember like all these big names were on the stage and everybody was kind of like Google gaga about Tim Ferriss and Tucker Max and all these people. But there's this you know guy Ryan Holiday at the back of the room that nobody's paying attention to. But the guys on stage know who he is. So that's why I was like, there's something interesting about this kid. And lo and behold, like, you know, now he's, again, has five, he, at that time, he didn't have any books. Now he has five big books under his belt. And, you know, was working with football teams and was the, at one point in time, director of marketing at American Apparel, which was doing $500 million a year, and all this kind of stuff. So he's one tiny example of somebody who I could have tried to build relationships with the people on the stage. Uh, but instead, I found that kind of diamond in the rough, so to speak, and has been a beautiful friendship as a result. So I'm always looking to, for those, you know, rising stars, so to speak. And yeah, that's one example. Buy low, exactly. hundred percent, hundred
1: percent, and
0: never sell, never sell,
1: <laughs> never sell, <laughs> never sell. Cool. So a couple more questions, working towards wrapping up here. Okay, a people can go mastermind dinners. You can buy the book. You can learn about the the you know how Jason does it. But you you've also given me a couple good tips too. So. You know, when I I think about the the Culver City dinner that you did, that that had what that was like 60 to 80 people or so. So, do you have any type of checklist, maybe like the top three things to do or not to do when throwing a dinner like that?
0: Yeah. So, well, well, first things first, you don't have to buy the book. I was just razzing. you. Go to (laughs) masterminddinners.com. You can actually uh, get the audiobook version for free. But even better than the book, I did a podcast episode on the Community Aid podcast. Amazing
1: podcast, G- by the way.
0: Thank you. It's, it's a the podcast episode. is called Becoming a Catalyst. And basically, when I wrote Mastermind Dinners, I think it was 2014, I've done hundreds of dinners since then, and I've refined it, even though like the principles still work. I've refined that process significantly. So I ended up doing an updated version, so to speak, in that podcast episode. So literally, I went step by step. That dinner I told you I did in Waterloo, where it was 40 people who I didn't know, I went step by step how I did that dinner, you know, and email scripts and all that kind of stuff. So I would go to that before I'd read the book. And then once you listen to that podcast episode, you won't need to read the book. Yep. But yeah, I mean, really, though, so the biggest thing when it comes to these dinners is like the heavy lifting needs to be done in advance. You can't just throw people together. You can, but you know, if you do the heavy lifting in advance, I've never had a bad dinner. That basically what that heavy lifting looks like is again, I think you have to make a decision on what the purpose of the dinner is. Again, going wide in your networking and deep in your nurturing. If you want to go wide, then you do a big dinner, right? Eight person, larger dinner there'll be multiple conversations going on you won't have an opportunity you'll be facilitating it so you won't have an opportunity to participate in these conversations um so that's going wide if you want to go deep then you have a dinner of six people and that gives you an opportunity to participate in conversation there's one unifying conversation going around a table and that's what speaks to me now the most only because you know i'm at a point where i'm not necessarily looking for more friends again getting back to prioritization so you have to decide which one of those two speaks to you. The second thing is harnessing the power of uncommon commonalities. So the way I always like to frame it is that like, you know, if you and I were to walk downtown LA and we want to meet 30 entrepreneurs, we'd have to stop 1000 people at random to meet 30 entrepreneurs. So if you were at a dinner with 30 entrepreneurs, you share that uncommon commonality, there's a very good chance that you'd get along, right? As opposed to just picking 30 people randomly from that pool of a thousand where you have like a business owner and then, you know, a mortgage broker and all that kind of stuff. So, so doing that heavy lifting when it comes to the curation is key, but the stronger, the uncommon commonality, the stronger the bond. So if I'm in a dinner of 30 entrepreneurs, that's going to be awesome. Conversations are going to flow. My business is seven figures. If I'm at a dinner with entrepreneurs with seven figure businesses, conversation most likely will go even better because these people are going through the same struggles as me and all that kind of stuff. If I'm going at a dinner with entrepreneurs with seven figure businesses that have kids, and that are married, most likely, you know, I'm going to hit it off even more. So trying to figure out what those uncommon commonality is, and the deeper the uncommon commonality, the deeper the bond, ultimately. And it doesn't have to be just business, could be, you know, it could be, you know, stay-at-home parents, it could be people who formerly, you know, served in the military, whatever the case may be. So that's the two first things. And then the third thing I think would be really the space, being very conscious of the space, like even to this day. If I'm doing a dinner, I'll show up like an hour in advance. So I spend a ton of time and resources trying to find the perfect restaurant. And that's like, you know, a space that can accommodate a lot of different types of dietary restrictions. So like Mexican restaurants were great for like paleo and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so I tend to lean on Mexican if I can, and then try to find a space that ideally is quiet. If I, The nice thing is if you have a dinner of six people, you can do that almost anywhere. Eight people or more, you'd have to get a private room oftentimes and that kind of stuff. But quiet, accessible, great menu options. Those are the space really lends itself to, you know, the experience ultimately. So those would be the three things.
1: Three more questions and then uh, we will be all done. So for these dinners, and I've been a part of dinners where people might, you know, charge for it and then some people will pay for it. So what is your take on it? Pay for Mm -hmm. it or just do you charge people for it?
0: Yeah. So there's two different schools of thought and neither of them are wrong. So for me, I always pay for dinners. I'm in a financial position to, I've always done that. So I have almost this like consistency bias now that I'm like, I can't let anybody else pay for a dinner. So there's benefits to that. You know, I don't do it for these reasons, but there's the whole Cialdini uh, philosophy around reciprocity. So if I do something nice for you, then you, you know, do something nice for me, that kind of stuff. And I mean, on some level, the reason I do that is is because I never want to reach out to somebody getting back to that whole, like, you know, networking uh, is shallow. I never want to reach out to somebody cold and ask for an introduction. So I want thousands of relationships where I can, if I know they're connected with somebody I need to connect with, I reach out to them. They'll give me the time of day or they'll be open to facilitating the introduction. Yeah. You can pay for dinners. And that's one of the benefits and then the other, and then so that's one philosophy. The other philosophy is is getting people to pay for their own dinner, obviously. It depends on the, the audience, but I'm, most of the time, you know, if I pay for dinner, people are very grateful, what have you? It can make some people feel uneasy as well because they don't like to be out of balance where it's like, now you owe me. And even though I like... I'll never reach out to most of those people for anything. You know what I mean? Sometimes unconsciously in the back of their head, they're like, what does this guy really want? So that's the, that some people have their guard up as a result. And you're like, hey, come to my free dinner. Even though I don't position it as like a free dinner. Say like, hey, do you want to be a special guest at this dinner? And it's me type thing. So that's the. And then, But on the flip side too, which kind of plays into this, is this whole philosophy by a friend of mine named Michael Roderick, which is like giving debt, which I've never thought about. Because I've always my operating system is like give till it hurts like continue to give continue to give and like never ask like jab 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 no right hook like just keep jabbing (laughs) Uh, and the problem what happens is even especially with close friends is if you keep jabbing, and you so you keep giving and you never receive, sometimes that debt will be so out of balance that it creates friction in the relationship. And that's something to be conscious of, too, which I wasn't conscious of for the longest time. So there's no right answer. It's really what speaks to you. There's other ways to, to, you know, I've always paid for dinners. And that's the philosophy in the the first version of mastermind dinners. But I know not everybody's in the position to do so. I've People. Some people charge, some people get sponsors to pay for the dinners. There's a bunch of different creative ways to go about it. But that's kind of the thought process as far as, you know, should I pay for the dinner or should I let people pay?
1: Yep, super helpful. All right, so what is one new tool that you've added in the last year that has added a lot of a lot of value to your life? So it could be like a Peloton bike, like a physical thing, or it could be like an app.
0: Bro, I was going to bring up that Peloton bike. Uh, oh, in I, the did back? One, I did my 30 minutes yesterday with Alex. Hussein or what have you? Yeah, awesome. Yeah, dude, you, you I, gotta add me. Yeah, that's amazing. I will. I, yeah. I'm still getting used to it. I've only yeah. done like 20 rides or something. Oh, same I, here. I, I just got it, dude. It is one of the greatest things. I thought it was so stupid when yes. it came out and their valuation. I'm like so dumb. Yeah, but you know what and it is I, though. It's like the the fact that it keeps
1: like oh it's, someone is kicking your ass, you know, and then you're 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 losing.
0: Percent And then like yes. give it the monthly emails of like, you know, your recap of how many times you've written and all that kind of stuff. It's the, and then the biggest problem I had with spin is that like you go to a club, you don't know if you're doing better than last time. And like, so last night I did and I was just competing with myself. I'm like, I got to get like six points higher than I did last time. So it's yeah beautiful tool. So, so maybe Peloton, honestly, I'd say, and and this is a person, not necessarily a thing, but having an integrator. So if you follow Gino Wickman's Traction, uh, EOS, Entrepreneurs Operating This one's called uh, Rocket Fuel. His book is called Rocket Fuel. It's phenomenal. Yeah. And it's one of those books that, I mean, I've been an entrepreneur for a long time and I understand like, you know, the importance of Removing yourself from in the business to, and working on the business instead, and all that kind of stuff. But reading Rocket Fuel was one of the first times I've ever re- like read something tangible, and I was like, "Oh my god, I'm a visionary, and I need this person and integrate." And was able to find that for a new business that that I have, and it's been going famously. So Tam, if you're listening, he's the greatest thing that happened to me in the last year. <laughs> awesome.
1: No, I, I'll I'll give that a plus one. After reading that, I got uh we we got an integrator, and it totally shifted the business. So uh yeah. That book. Well, actually, so here's the, here's the other question. So what is one must-read book you'd recommend an audience that is not traction and is not rocket fuel?
0: I could give a cookbook. No. <laughs> no, that, that, that's good. <laughs> no, i, I There's so many. One of them, which I love, is Seeking Wisdom. It's not by Charlie Munger. I forgot who it's by now. But it's basically just so much wisdom in that book. So it's ironic the way it's titled. But there's just so much wisdom is when it comes to cognitive biases and looking at investing and and that kind of stuff. It's one of those evergreen books that you know I, I choose to to read and reread every year or two. And every time I, I read it, I see it through a different lens. That's a, a fantastic book. And for the longest time, you couldn't find it on Amazon. You had to get it through the publisher, but I think you can get it through through Amazon now.
1: You're actually right. It's Darwin and Munger. <laughs> Yeah it's, yeah, it's
0: from yeah from Darwin to Munger. It's 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 honestly it's one of those books. It's I've highlighted the whole damn thing. It's it's amazing.
1: I am adding it to cart right now. Just <laughs> look, look what you did, man! All right, well, Jason, this has been great. There's so many ways for for people to find you online. What are the best ways for people to find you online?
0: Instagram is something I'm leaning into now. I know I'm late to the party, but uh, Jason Gaynard on Instagram, Facebook, I'm pretty yeah pretty accessible on those platforms. So um, that's usually the easiest way. And then community made is. Uh, There's two seasons to that. One is on scale, which we kind of talked about today. And the other one is all on relationships, which is, yeah, basically a blueprint of everything I know, which is season two
1: great so community made guys check out that podcast i mean it's it's been amazing i think i've listened to episodes multiple times and i usually don't do that and Mm -hmm. also check out mastermind talks as well and check out all the things that are going on in jason's world by the way it turns i'm on the amazon page right now it turns out i bought this item but i think i might have lost it so i'm gonna buy another (laughs) one um so jason thanks so much for doing this
0: awesome brother thank you for having me on